Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for all things. We know that you have promised to work all things together for for our good. And uh, so, Father, I pray that you give us understanding of what our good is, <laughs> as you see it, because that's what you're uh, promising to do. And what a precious promise that is. Pray that we'll rest in that promise and uh, accepted by faith believing and have the reality of it we know that you don't meet all of our needs heavenly father and there's so many of them that we cry out to you about and uh, so there are many thanksgivings on the lips of uh, and in the minds of your dear ones that gather here, Father, we have so much to be thankful of. Father, thank you for the opportunity to access good health care and also to receive it through your healing hand. Father, we pray for um, our nation, which is in real trouble, because the churches have failed to preach the truth. Certainly, that's that's one part of it, big part of it. But, Father, we know that also that the enemy has certain liberties according to your plan for the ages, which has worked out always because your will is always accomplished. And so, Father, if this is the time for sin to overwhelm our nation, and as it has so many others, Father, and we know prophecy might indicate that, and Father, we would just pray for the believers that they would be sustained through this, for we ourselves, that we would not trust in earthly matters, but in those matters which are heavenly. For all of this will pass away. Thank you, Father, that our hope is eternal, and uh, we listen for that shout and that call, and it comes from heaven to call us into your presence and into the presence of our Lord Jesus and into the presence of our dear ones who've gone before. So, Father, that is what we are listening to. I pray that we wouldn't listen to the voices that are earthly, that are worldly, that would overwhelm us spiritually and uh, cause us to be fretful and worrisome and anxious. So, Father, may we... Now open your word together, looking for a blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So today we get to continue on. The subject is Romans dispensationally considered and how its themes are revealed by the very words themselves that Paul uses there. And we've uh, we've considered what some of those words are, and we're looking at it in the order in which they appear. In other words, how often those words appear in Paul's letters to the Romans. As we saw, and we're surprised, I think, that the word I'm, no, I'm only talking about doctrinal words, of course, not other words. There are so many other words that occur hundreds or thousands of times. But uh, 
the words that are used in teaching, uh, those words, the one that occurred most often and does find itself all over this letter is the word law. <laughs> and uh, we tried to understand why that was last time and uh, saw that uh, it was because the whole backdrop and the whole context really of Paul's letter is in the in reference to worldly religious systems, the primary one being that of Judaism, which Paul was raised under, and that that religious system was perverted from the way that God had given it through Moses down through many, many centuries. And uh, what Paul had in the first century was what he'd been raised up in, was detrimental to his understanding of how God really is working today under grace. And certainly the uh, system that Paul was raised under, and he was taught by the greatest teacher of his day, and Paul himself probably therefore became the greatest uh, proponent of that religious system as well. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And... Uh, uh, was propagating everywhere, sharing everywhere, and even uh, by force, compelling uh, those in uh, inside the promised land, inside Israel, and also outside in Gentile areas nearby, compelling them to submit to the perverted doctrines of the Pharisees that were only superficially based on Moses' actual law. Um, but they did go back to the, the law, and they did, uh, all of them did have that, I'm sure, mostly memorized. Certainly Paul did. So Paul uh, uses the word law so often here because the Judaizers had gone forth from Israel and followed after Paul everywhere he went, and so they went into the churches after Paul had left town and uh, led the people astray with false teachings. And basically their point of view was that all believers were still under law. And the grace was to be interpreted in the light of law and uh, to be subsumed underneath it. So really, law was the governing principle, not grace. And that was so contrary to what Paul had taught that he uh, went everywhere uh, than he could, again teaching uh, how God is working under grace, and not by works, but by faith. And uh, he writes his letters then uh, also with that as a major purpose. So Romans is the book where law is used so much, the word law, in fact, 78 times approximately. Now, these numbers might be a little off. If you do a word study, it might say 76, 79. Depends on the fact that sometimes multiple words are closely related and are all translated law or something similar. And so um, law 
approximately 78 times. And I'll just read uh, two verses uh, that we looked at last time. Romans 3.20 and 21 read like this. They were very important uh, teachings about law. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, in great contrast, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So that's Romans 3, 20 and 21. We'll be looking at it again later since we have to read it again in a different context later. Then Romans chapter 8, verse 3 makes this extremely bold and strong statement. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. (laughs) So there are many things the law could do. It could conform the flesh, for example, in a limited way. But what Paul says is that he couldn't do that very, very well because the law, he writes here in verse 3 of Romans 8, was weak through the flesh. However, God intersected with humanity by sending forth his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. So his purpose in coming into the world was to offer up himself as a perfect sacrifice, uh, sufficient to satisfy the Lord God regarding sin and sins, even the sins of the world. Um, And so uh, he sent forth his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh because Christ himself, though he had possessed perfect humanity in his incarnation, that humanity was not tainted by sin. And uh, that was a a great miracle, really, uh, of the incarnation. Um, But um, through his death, he condemned sin in the flesh. Understanding that, of course, is somewhat of a challenge. And uh, for not only for us, but for all those that have come down uh, with this text in hand, with the word of God from the letter to the Romans in our hearts and in our minds, with the spirit of God teaching us how to understand these precious words. He condemned sin in the flesh. Okay, uh, so the law was on Paul's mind. Always. But when he was converted on the road to Damascus, uh, he was given understanding that he did not have before. And that changed his whole focus in life. So much so that he gave up everything regarding his former life, as he wrote in the letter to the Philippians. Um, And because he gave it all up and he was no longer a proponent of the uh, doctrine of the Pharisees, and of the uh, 
legalistic, perverted Jewish teaching of the day, where he had spent his life previously, he was then brought into great persecution. And that continued his entire life. Um, the thorn in the flesh was always there. There was no escape. The Lord God did not remove it, even though he cried out multiple times. And instead, the Lord God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And that's now something that uh, Paul then stands upon. It's part of his testimony that he is the example of how God works under grace. He's the example for all those, he writes, who would come after uh, what it is to be a sinner saved by grace. So so we did look at law, the word law last time, and how that uh, is found there in a letter to the Romans. Law found uh, 78 times, but then the second most uh, common occurrence is the word justification, which is found 65 times, 65 or more, depending upon uh, other words that are closely related in the Greek language. Um, so that's a lot, okay? Justification. Being a challenging word indeed. In fact, um, first of all, uh, I'll say more about it, but uh, much more later, but... Um, The key verses that stand out in Romans would be in chapter 3 and in uh, in verse 24 and 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and then verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, <laughs> that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So, justification becomes a grand theme in Romans. And uh, the reason it became such a grand theme later was that this man, Martin Luther, was so challenged by these verses uh, about justification and righteousness and faith that he uh, he was at his wit's end. I mean, literally, quite literally speaking, he was a very learned man. Uh, and I'm going to say much more about him now than you might even need to hear, simply because if we look at Luther's experience of conversion, it might model some of ours, right? It certainly does mine, perhaps yours too, where we were raised in a religious system. And because of that religious system, that um, burdened our minds, uh, we were misled regarding how God actually is working. We were even misled as to who God truly is, because God reveals himself through his work, right? And if we don't know what his work is, how can we know who he is? 
uh, many claim to worship God. They say they believe in God, but they do not know who God is. And uh, that was the situation with Martin Luther. Because of his conviction that the church had entirely lost the truth about this subject, in fact, even lost the gospel altogether, um, Luther focused in on this specifically, and his life was transformed by that, and so was the lives of millions of others down through time. Um, we saw last time, we looked at a man named John Wesley and saw how he was transformed when he believed the gospel of God's grace in the early 1700s. He'd been raised in a corrupted, perverted religious system as well and needed to actually hear the words of Romans in these very chapters we've been looking at. He had them, heard them read in a meeting where someone was commenting on those words by reading out of Luther's commentary on Romans, translated into English, right? So that was John Wesley in the early 1700s. But 220 years before Wesley was saved, Martin Luther's life was transformed through these same words. And so that's 500 years ago and more uh, in our calendar. But how did Luther come to his conviction? Uh, well, the story goes like this. And if you look on the website after I post this uh, later today, you can read the details. I'm now just going to give you the highlights. But that's only to save time. But you really should read the whole story. Luther was born in a town named Eisleben, a very small village in Germany. In 1483, now think about that, 1483, 15th century, okay? He was born into a peasant family that was, at least on his mother's side, pious Catholics. And she instilled the fear of God into her children. Martin was very strong-willed but she instilled the fear of God into her son, and he entered into the Catholic school at an early age uh, for those days, age five, where, you might expect, he was a very good student. In other words, he learned all about Catholicism as it was uh, being uh, taught in those days in Germany. Well, he prospered in school. When he was only 17 years old, which was also early for those days, he entered into the university in the city named Erfurt, the University of Erfurt, where he became a serious student and did extremely well. <laughs> Interestingly, his nickname in school at the university was the philosopher. <laughs> That's because he was so good in debating religious subjects. <laughs> oh, my. <clears throat> Four years later, uh, after university, entered law school. This was because his father, who was a minor, 
wanted his son to have a good uh, income, good enough that uh, he could support the whole family later. And so he was sent to law school. His, his father sacrificed everything that Luther could go to law school. And Luther went off uh, confident into law school. Well, but the Lord was ready to intersect with his life. And only six months after he entered law school, he decided to visit home. And the weather was just terrible. And, of course, he was walking. There was no other way for a poor man to travel. He was walking home, and there was a terrible thunder and lightning storm that was so severe that he was just thrown to the ground by a lightning strike nearby. In fact, some, some versions of this story, and we don't know if it's true or not, hold that Luther's friend who was walking with him was killed by lightning at that point. Luther was, however, delivered, but the force of the lightning and thunder so influenced him that he cried out for help, and he cried out to St. Anne, who is the uh, patron saint of minors. He had learned uh, to do that from his youth, right? Uh, well, he was so influenced by this, he, he called upon St. Anne and promised that he would leave law school and join a monastery <laughs> and serve God <laughs> for the rest of his life. So he threw a party after he got back to law school and announced that he was giving away everything, including all of his books. And he immediately left and went over and knocked on the door of the nearby monastery, which was called the Black Cloister. And, uh, oh my, he gave up everything for the sake of God as he knew it. So he was a deeply religious person. But his view of God is that God was a perfect judge and no one could live up to God's perfect standard and therefore all were subject to hell and damnation except by some incredible miracle of the church. <laughs> and the church offered through the sacraments various ways to avoid that, including confession, including penance and so forth. Um, so in Luther's mind, all were burdened by sin. The only deliverance was works. And if one lived a life that was good enough, and no one knew how good that had to be, uh, then one might receive grace uh, ultimately. And so that was his hope. So really, on, in Luther's mind, for years then, were subjects such as fasting, poverty. Have I fasted enough? He constantly asked himself. Am I poor enough? Have I given up absolutely everything? Have I sacrificed enough that I suffer in daily living greatly every day? Uh, it's been said that he would not even wear proper clothing in the middle of winter uh, because he wanted to suffer from the cold. And um, he even said of himself at one point when he wrote about this later that uh, if he had stayed in the monastery much longer, he would have killed himself through vigils, prayers, reading, 
and other work. But <laughs> the Lord was working in the year 1510. So this is uh, five years after he's entered the monastery. He was so esteemed there that word of Luther had gotten uh, to higher ups in the church, the level of the bishops and so forth. And so they had a controversy uh, in Germany over um, to what degree the Pope and others could offer indulgences. Now, indulgences were merit, <laughs> merit badges, you might say, to use a common term from scouting. Uh, the church taught that some, some they called them saints, um, they were so obedient and so godly in their lives that they had earned uh, more than they had uh, more than their sins demanded. In other words, they had through their own works they had uh, succeeded in canceling their own sin and had an excess of uh, good works available and those could then be shared uh, through the catholic merit system and indulgence system with others and so the, there was an issue in germany about to what extent could this system also apply to those who'd already died <laughs> um, if you'd already died could the pope transfer that extra merit over to uh, a person's account. So nobody questioned whether the Pope could do this in those days for anyone who was living. Uh, but if he'd already died, maybe it was too late. And that was the question. So they sent Luther off to Rome to uh, investigate this subject and to uh, help uh, the German church come to a uh, decision about this. And so while, while he's in Rome, Luther is gaining all kinds of merit by going to all the right places. And there were indulgences provided uh, to those that uh, went to uh, the Pope's uh, dwelling, to those that uh, uh, worshipped in a certain place, and to those that climbed the Spanish steps. Uh, they got a special merit for this, and that's why so many pilgrims were doing that. But while Luther was climbing the, climbing the Spanish steps, he began to wonder whether did this system actually work? Did God accept these acts of penance? Uh, and so he got back to the monastery, and that's when the big breakthrough came. It had to do with the sacrament of penance because Luther was confessing his sins uh, probably every day to his confessor, and his confessor was a, a teacher there in, in the uh, uh, in the community, who was actually a very wise man. So Luther confessed over and over and over again all of his sins, but he told his confessor that he could not remember all of his sins, and therefore those sins were still on his account, and that greatly troubled him. So. His confessor said that he should seek forgiveness in the blood of Christ and just go on with life. And he should not be continually dwelling on his sin as he had been. 
And so he should just become a teacher himself. Well, Luther didn't think he could be a teacher because he wasn't well prepared as such. And he was a great sinner still with unconfessed sins that he couldn't even remember. Uh, and so he didn't think he could do this, but he was convinced to do it. And so he was made a lecturer in the university and began to teach. And when he began to teach, he taught he had to teach the scripture. It wasn't Catholic doctrine that he taught as much as it was the Bible itself. And so he started out in the Psalms and he got to Psalm 22, which really caused him to review everything that he'd ever believed about God and about mankind, because there he found the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? where Christ cries out on the cross to the Lord God when the sin of the world has come upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, he couldn't understand this verse, and it was a real problem for him. But he was having his mind and heart opened during that time to the truth of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, which the Roman Catholic Church does not accept, okay? Luther went on, and he began to teach from Romans, beginning in 1515. And he came to these words in the first chapter that really uh, stopped him uh, in his tracks, because he didn't understand them at all. And those words were, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He was teaching on this verse. He couldn't go on. He had to stop. He left the room. He went into the room where monks socialized, where they ate lunch and so forth, and he couldn't even stay there with them. He had to go off and isolate himself. He went to the monastery tower because these words were just um, so much on his mind. What did they mean? What did these words, the righteousness of God, mean? What did the righteousness of God mean? So he had spent his life focusing on the righteousness of man because that's what the law required, right? Not the righteousness of God. What was that all about? He thought it meant justice. He'd always been taught that. God was the judge. He was going to judge righteously, perfectly, and all would be condemned for their sins unless somehow those sins could be canceled by the special sacraments of the church right and he was never able to to do that perfectly and so he believed those sins were still on his account so here in this verse reading about the righteousness of god revealed in the gospel hmm, that's something he didn't know anything about so whenever he thought about the righteousness of God, he thought about justice. He thought about God as being an angry God who always was focused on judging sin. 
There was no grace there. There was no forgiveness. There was no salvation possible. And so that became for him a real problem. Now, I'm going to read for you his words. We read them last time. These were his words about these verses in Paul's letter and other verses there as well. And these are Luther's words. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, or the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that uh, although I was an impeccable monk, in other words, not breaking the rules of the church, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him or satisfy him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant in this letter. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. And so Paul, through the letter to the Romans, reached Luther's heart as he finally came to know that justification was all of faith and never of works. Not by faith plus something, but all of grace and never of works. And that's what he then went forth to teach and to preach. And it changed not only his life, of course, but that of Germany, that of Europe, and ultimately so many in the whole world. And that brings us down to our readings today, where I'd like to start with the next word. So we already looked at law, we looked at justification, and now we'll look at faith, at sin and sins, and then righteousness, and leave the rest of those key words for next time. So now faith. Faith is found 59 times. And let's begin our readings today. Gail, if you, you would begin, please. We'll just read two sections. Some are multiple verses. So Gail, would you please read Romans? These were the very words that uh, uh, were so uh, written on Luther's heart that he, he could not turn aside until finally 
uh, the Spirit of God taught him their meaning. <laughs> so Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Gail? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Thank you, Gail, so much. And uh, Patty, can you uh, read Romans 3.26? To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Amen. So Luther was compelled to do exactly what Paul writes of here when he says, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. So it's not all about our righteousness, it's all about his. In other words, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus, uh, that he might be righteous and the one who declares righteous, him which believeth in Jesus. Because this word just really speaks of the righteousness of God here, not of his justice in some other sense, which is purely religious, okay? So that's uh, where we are there, where Luther was. I hope we are there, too, understanding well what these words mean, right? So what Paul is saying is that apart from understanding sin and how that brings, apart from grace, that it would bring the wrath of God, right? And that only through faith in the Savior as he's revealed to us as having fully accomplished the payment for our sin, only as his righteousness in doing that is communicated to us, are we saved, right? And that happens entirely on the basis of faith. So that's where Luther came, and that's where we should be today, uh, understanding well that, and therefore focused on declaring, in other words, testifying to others, about the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ and through him. Well, the next word I wanted us to look at is sin. Now, this is such a big word. All we can do is just give a summary quickly. And I'd like us to read two verses relating to sin. First of all, Jerry, chapter 3, verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in the sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Thank you, Jerry. Oh, my. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. But Moses demanded the law. He required it to be obeyed, right? So uh, Paul, of course, be, ends up being the great interpreter of, of the law uh, by uh, in Romans explaining so much more than... We can understand by only reading the Old Testament, because without the whole system, 
of the law with the whole sacrificial system and so forth, there's no way that anyone could ever live under it at all, right? So Paul becomes the interpreter <laughs> as well in Romans. And here he says, by the deeds of the law, no flesh is justified. Why? Because for the by the law is the knowledge of sin. Okay. And and so then he goes on in chapter three and four and then and five to explain himself further in great detail. And uh, I'll read chapter five, verse twelve, which is a key verse indeed. Wherefore, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men that all sinned. Okay. Now, what Paul does in this letter is to draw a distinction, which you can't really look at in detail today, a distinction between sin and sins. There's a distinction, and it's a complicated one in a sense. Really, there are three different meanings for the word. One is Sin in the sense of Romans 5.12, the sin of Adam, okay? <laughs> That's the first kind of sin, Adamic sin, okay? Then there's sin in the sense of what was propagated to the human race from Adam unto all men, as Romans 5.12 mentions it. And then there's acts of sin, that come from a sin nature and a nature given over to it, okay? So just to keep it simple, sin may be an act of rebellion against God. The other is far more deep than that. It's a relationship to Adam, and it's a condition under which uh, fallen humanity lives, namely as sinners with a, a nature of sin, dwelling within, right? That's not the same as an act of sin, which flows out of it. So we have the visible and the invisible. Man's philosophy focuses on, mostly on works, right? Doesn't ever get down to the uh, matters of the heart, really, and can't, because apart from the revelation of God, how can we know how God sees man, right? So that's what we see revealed here in these verses. When we look at the words uh, that God uses to teach us these critical doctrines. Well, that brings us down to righteousness, which is really where I want to finish up today. Because it, it is the word that uh, caused Luther to stumble and yet to be brought to the point of salvation so long ago, right? And that said, Luther, through his struggles, learned that Paul here in Romans is saying things that he didn't understand at all. He needed understanding from God, from the Holy Spirit, to comprehend these words. And part of the problem was that um, he knew the Latin intimately. All monks had it, had uh, Romans memorized in Latin. And... Uh, <clears throat> In Latin, there's just the, the, the one word, eustia, which when brought into our English language is the word justice uh, uh, or just. 
slightly different form of the word, right? And so in the Latin translation, wherever the, word, the, the Greek word for righteous occurred, they had in the Latin the word just. And that's why Luther is so perplexed there with uh, chapter uh, 1 and uh, verse uh, <clears throat> 17. Um, when it says the just shall live by faith. And then in chapter 3, uh, similarly, right? Um, so part of his problem was the language. He had to get back to the Greek itself, but the, it's certainly a matter also of his heart being opened to the revelation of God through these words given to Paul of how God uh, sees us uh, with our sin set aside and his righteousness imputed to our account. So really the whole issue is about the righteousness about Christ. Read on the uh, website later, you'll get the, the whole explanation of this. I don't have time to do it here today, but um, it is so important. Without understanding this point, that there's a big difference between a just God who judges sin according to his perfect standard and all are therefore condemned <laughs> apart from some system of works, right? One would be hopelessly caught in the challenge of working out one's own salvation, um, ultimately without faith and uh, only in obedience to the church rules. And that's where Luther found himself. And that's where many today who are religious find themselves. Uh, and many who are actually saved, who had the truth uh, perverted by false teachers, are really living in the realm of their own supposed, presumed, assumed righteousness, uh, when really it's uh, carnality and sin, right? They do not believe because they are not taught or for other reasons that the righteousness of God in Christ is really what the focus must be for us to be scriptural. And so really the key words I'd like to leave us with here today are these from chapter 3. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be righteous and the one who declares righteous the one who believes in Jesus because even the King James translators when they translated verse 26 had the Latin translation in their minds so much that they used the word just here twice when really it's the same word in the Greek in all three places. So it's to declare it, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be righteous and the righteous imputer, let us say. Uh, it's a slightly different form of the word, but it's still the word righteous. Of him which believeth in Jesus. Praise God. That's where our salvation lies. And sanctification is very much based on whether we dwell in the realm of his grace as these words have revealed it. Praise God today. I'm going to close by reading 
three verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says this in a different way, but says it so well. Writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.19, to wit, that God was in or by Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though Christ did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, that his righteousness might be imputed to our account. And if it has been, then we dwell potentially in the realm of newness in life every day as we walk by faith and not by sight. Praise God for his unlimited grace. Well, what a message. It's so transforming. It brings us eternal life. We would receive it. And then it brings us the joy of knowing him if we'd live in the light of it. Praise God. Well, I I hope it's been a blessing to you to consider these uh, additional words and that reveal Paul's themes there in this letter. Given so long ago for our benefit and blessing. Praise God. Are there any comments today before we go to prayer? It was a wonderful message, Jim. Something important for us to share. It is so important, and we we need to really be instructed and encouraged to do it so we're not fearful and silent, right? Good morning, Jim. So I just want to say thank you for the message. You know, it's got to show that the importance of look at the or, original manuscript, look at the word, then yes. we can discover uh, different meanings, well, broader meanings of the teaching. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for gathering us today around this precious word of truth. Thank you for your great blessings that have just transformed us uh, through this word of truth. And may we be a witness to others. May we testify. May we declare, Heavenly Father, your righteousness through Jesus Christ. Praise your name, Father. And uh, and may our thanksgivings never end as we consider the glories of your grace. And we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen.